This morning, our topic is worldliness. And I feel like the fifth Sunday of Sundays in July, sort of like that last day of summer camp. Um, I'm worried that you are full, spiritually speaking, from all of the sessions and all of the all the different teaching that's happened throughout this month. So my goal for us this morning is to be really, really practical, just to, to help you understand some principles to fight from, from worldliness, to fight worldliness and to really just let God's word speak. Um, so that, that'll be our goal this morning. I want to I pray for us. And then I want to walk us through this third chapter of, of the letter to the Philippians. And we're going to really focus in on verses 17 of chapter 3 through the first verse of chapter 4. And I want to pull out there what I believe are some great principles to fighting worldliness. Um, so that's, that's the game plan for us this morning. Uh, let me pray for us, and then we will we'll get started. Father, thank you for our church. God, thank you for your work here to continue to build your church. Father, we feel blessed to be a part of it, to, to be here and to sit under such a rich teaching from our pastor week after week. God, we pray for him. And God, even just as Sundays in July wraps up today, Lord, would you just continue to, to help us value your word, to treasure it and to love it, God, to apply its truth to our lives. Lord, would you give us an attentive heart to your word this morning? Would you make the message clear? Father, we pray these things in the name of your son. Amen. Amen. Well, I had this dazzling PowerPoint uh, this presentation all set for us, but uh, the, the computer has failed us as it tends to do. Um, so you're just going to have to be visually impressed with the wall. Um, <laughs> it really, it actually wasn't that impressive. If you come up and look at it, You'll see. Um, But I want to just begin by talking about the brain. The brain is a vital part of our life experience. The brain is a constant reminder of how amazing our creator is. And the brain that God gave us is certainly remarkable, all that it does. Sometimes as a parent... If, if you have children, you'll, you maybe will agree with this. I, I question the, the function of the brains of my children. I, I, I wonder to, if it's really working at full capacity, uh, but I can't blame them for, for too long because I know who they get it from. Um, oh, and me, not, not Leah. It's, no, it's definitely me. But the brain is, it's just a remarkable organ of the body from the ability to think, to, to control all of our muscles, our brain, it just, it's enabling us to do everything. In fact, our brains are so amazing that it does this whole list of, of functions without us even knowing about it. Uh, it's, it's constantly doing things that we don't really even have to pay attention to. We literally have to do nothing All these things are just naturally happening. For example, your brain is is actually constantly filtering out information that it it doesn't think is important. Um, Without your help at all, your your brain is just eliminating information that it's taking in. goes without saying, every second of every day, we're just bombarded with information and all day long, your brain is filtering out things that it doesn't think are necessary. Its brain is just filtering some of that stuff out. It's probably why you don't remember maybe what the first person you met at church today was wearing. If I had you close your eyes, some of you might not be able to, to tell me what your spouse was wearing. And we would never do that because I would never put the guys in jeopardy like that. Um, ever, ever, ever. But if you did, you would, you would maybe struggle just for a second because your brain has filtered some of that information out. And it does that without any of your uh, help at all. 
literally have to do nothing. There's more, blinking. Blinking is an automatic reflex reaction put in place to protect, maintain the the moisture of your eye. Brain does that. It's the same system that, that forces your eyes to shut when something's about to hit your eye, which if I had done that question, some of you guys would have wanted to try that with, with my f- eyes. Um, it does that. It just naturally does that without any, any ability from you, any, any thought from you. It's doing that. You have to do absolutely nothing. to do nothing and blinking happens all by itself. If you try to keep your eyes open for too long, that reflex kicks in and forces you to blink. Um, If you've been around a seven-year-old for very long, you maybe have done a staring contest and you know what that's about, but you have to do nothing. There's more. You don't have to do anything and your brain automatically places your tongue where it needs to go for you to to form sounds and words. Um, You just have to think about the words, which sometimes is a challenge. Um, Constantly, just brain is doing all these things. It regulates your your body temperature. Brain just does all that for you. Keeps you at a perfect 98.6 or 37 Celsius. Is that right? Who knows that? Paul, you would know, is it? Yeah. Facts. Um, You don't have to do anything. Your brain just does all this. It'll cause you to shiver when you're cold. The brain will, will help you maintain balance. It'll even make you sneeze uh, when, when you need to. All of those things happen. And all you have to do is nothing. And doing nothing sounds pretty nice to us quite often. Um, just doing nothing. I look forward to the, the day after junior high summer camp or two of just doing absolutely nothing. Uh, and it's, it's glorious, wonderful. Um, In in the case of our brains and all that it does without us, I don't know about you, but I'm so thankful that I don't have to think about that stuff. I'm so grateful for what the the brain does, that I don't have to think about blinking or where I need to put my tongue to say words. That would just be, be miserable. I hope we recognize that God is good and wise to create brains that do so much of that stuff without our constant involvement. So doing nothing is is a good thing when we talk about involuntary brain function. But this morning, I want to help you start to think about this truth that sometimes doing nothing is is actually a, a bad thing. Doing nothing isn't always a good thing. And as we we learn about worldliness and we talk about what worldliness is, I believe that we'll see that all you have to do to be worldly is nothing. All you have to do to give in to worldliness is absolutely nothing. That's what the sermon's going to be about this morning in a fail-proof way, and you could write this down. To be worldly is to do absolutely nothing. Doing nothing is all that's required to be worldly. So let's, let's read our sort of our focused text together, and then we'll, we'll start to see some of this truth in all of chapter 3. Starting in verse 17, Philippians chapter 3, verse 17. Read God's word together and see why this is true. Brothers, Paul writes, join in imitating me. Keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example that you have in us. For many of whom I have often told you and now tell you, even with tears, they walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction Their God is their belly, and they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. Verse 20, but our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. Therefore, 
my brothers whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. So Paul is, is on a roll in chapter 3. Um, he is, is like a marksman, just never missing the, the mark ever. You, you wouldn't want to play darts with Paul because he hits the bullseye every single time. And, and, and in chapter 3, he's just relentlessly exposing false teaching, this dangerous teaching that's influencing the people in Philippi. He keeps exposing it right at the very heart of it because he wants these near and dear brothers and sisters in Christ to know what, what's happening, to know what they're up against, and to know the truth of how they need to respond. He just moves from one to the next, getting to the heart of each false doctrine and each deceptive lie that is, is threatening the people of the church in Philippi. And it's such a, a clear format in chapter 3. He just exposes the false teaching and then tells them how to respond. False teaching, how to respond. Here's the instruction of how to live in light of this false teaching. And that's what he's doing in chapter 3. And he begins in chapter 3 with, with the Judaizers. Uh, he's, he's confronting this, this, this dangerous and very heretical doctrine. He says in verse 2 of chapter 3, look out for the dogs. Paul's not mincing words. Look out for the evil doers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus, putting no confidence in the flesh. So Paul doesn't want these Philippian believers to be misled by the message that the Judaizers were insisting upon. He, he doesn't want them to think that the gospel of Christ is insufficient, that the gospel wasn't enough. He didn't want these believers to think that they had to add works to the gospel. He didn't want them to, to think that Jesus wasn't sufficient, which is the message that the Judaizers were insisting upon. Yes, the gospel is good, but we have to add in some ceremonial law to that in order for you to actually be saved. To Paul, that couldn't be any further from the truth. And that's not true for us as well. God doesn't want us to doubt that Jesus' sacrifice on the cross is insufficient. By, by grace, we need faith in Christ alone for salvation, of course. Sacrifice fully sufficient. We don't have to, to add ceremonial law to the gospel we don't need to add anything to the gospel. In fact, our, our pastor just, just went through Galatians 5, and, and we saw that there, Paul speaking to the very same issue. He's, he's warning the Galatians of the danger of Judaism. And in Galatians 5, talks again about submitting again to this man-made yoke of slavery, claiming that circumcision or ceremonial laws is what really saves you. Galatians 5.2, Paul writes, accepting this makes, uh, makes Christ of no advantage to you anymore. When we add to the gospel, we cancel out what, what Christ has done. Severing yourself from Christ. So Paul talks about this, and he's, he's right to the heart of this in chapter 3 of Philippians, making sure that these believers understand and are insisting upon that, that the only thing they need for salvation is the righteousness of Christ, which verse 9 of, of Philippians 3 tells us can only come through faith in Christ. So he confronts these Judaizers. And then in verse 12, he, he, he turns his focus onto an, another false teaching. He deals with this idea of, of perfectionism, this I, idea of, of that when we get saved, we become perfect in verses 12 through 16. 
verse 12, Paul starts to talk about this divisive and, and, and dangerous teaching that was beginning to circle around this church, circulate through this church, that being a Christian means you don't sin anymore. And, and some in the church were embracing that and, and believing and telling others that through Christ, they're not sinning. And Paul says that simply is not true. Verses 12 to 16, Paul unpacks that, and, and we even know that to be true as well. If there would have been anyone ever able to say, yes, I've arrived, I, I'm, I'm, I'm there, I did it, I'm no longer sinning, it would probably be Paul. It probably would have been Paul who, who, who got there. Um, he would have made the yearbook as the one most likely to stop sinning. But he doesn't. That doesn't, the opposite of what he says in verse 12. I've not obtained this sinless perfection yet. I haven't fully become like Jesus yet. I want to, Paul says, I want to be like Christ as much as possible. But brothers and sisters, I am not there yet. Paul then explains how, how Christians are to live in light of the reality that we are still fighting against sin, how to respond to that, how to think right about sin, how to, like Paul, chase and pursue holiness. Because those two are tough to do all the time, we have to stay motivated by our relationship with Christ. And that's what Paul was driving at. That's how to deal with this idea that you're not perfect, that you're still sinful, and this is what matters. And now we get to verse 17. And for our text this morning, Paul's going to shift his gaze one more time and now start to talk about worldliness. When you read it, or when I read it, and you, you read along with me, I, I know you can pick out in verse 17 and even in chapter 4, verse 1, these two commands of Paul, they're, they're so easy to spot. Join in imitating me, he says in verse 17. And then in 4.1, he says, stand firm. Start to see this as a, a passage about imitating Paul and, and standing firm in our faith. And, and generally speaking, that's a great message. And that certainly is what this is about. We have to ask ourselves, then what specifically then does, does Paul want us to imitate? What does he want us to, to stand firm in? What is it, Paul? Just, just tell us. And for that, we have to reread verses 18 and 19. For many of whom I have often told you and now tell you, even with tears, they walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction. Their God is their belly, and they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. Friends, Paul is still very much in warning mode. He, he is exposing still very dangerous teaching, and he's exposing the problem of worldliness. He's exposing to the Philippians that, truthfully, uh, that there's a kind of professing believer who's vulnerable to this way of thinking, vulnerable to this thought that you can follow Christ and also love the world, that those two things can coexist. And Paul is saying they cannot. And as a Christian, we need to be sharp and attuned to that, that under no circumstance can those Two things ever coexist. We love Christ, follow Christ, and also truly be in love with the world. Vulnerable to a mind that is set on worldly things, a mind that is infatuated with the things of this world. Paul has seen it before. He's seen it firsthand. 
Believers are, are led away from the truth of Christ. Believers are, are, are misled and they begin to grow numb to the commands of, of, of Jesus and they become cold in their desire to live right in this world. They begin to, to walk away. They set their minds, Paul says, they set their minds, they're fixed on all that the world offers. They're intent on living just like the world, just like unbelievers. And I think that's a great definition for worldliness. I would encourage you to write that that down, intent on living just like the world. And you say, hey, junior high guy, the world, that word worldliness, it's not even in here. And I agree, it's not. But that is certainly what Paul is describing. It's certainly what Paul is talking about. Verse 19, a mind that is fixed on earthly things. Fixed. A mind that's intent on living like an unbeliever. And when you read verse 20, you see that Paul says, but our citizenship is in heaven. An obvious contrast, right? An obvious contrast. Contrast those who are citizens of heaven and those who are citizens of the world. Paul begins by describing those who walk as, as enemies of the cross. And, and what a description that is of worldliness. Their God is their appetite. Their glory is their shame. Minds set on earthly things. In verse 20, but our citizenship, but our citizenship, Christians are different. Our citizenship is not this world. We we, we belong to God's kingdom. We belong to God's domain. Our, Our home is where God is in heaven. That's where we belong. That's what your citizenship belongs to. Your birth certificate is, when you are born again, now heaven. That's a helpful statement by Paul because it helps us understand that worldliness, we get it a little bit better. It's having a citizenship here on earth. You don't care that your citizenship is in heaven. Worldliness then is you belonging here. Finding your place here, feel, really just convinced and feeling like you belong right here. Comfortable. Cozy. Loving and longing for all that this world is offering. And this is a world that the Bible describes as hating the light of Christ, a world that loves the darkness of their sin, John 3, a world that the Bible describes as suppressing the truth about God by their unrighteousness and ungodliness, Romans 1, a world that the Bible says is full of people who, who, who do not understand None of them seek after God. They are worthless. None do good. The Bible describes our world as a world of bitterness and pain and hurt and misery and ultimately a world where there is an absence of those who fear the Lord. Maybe better described, it's a a world full of conflict and fighting. James chapter 4, it's a world that's under the influence of the the devil who veils the gospel and he works double time to keep unbelievers blind to the truth about Christ, 2 Corinthians 4. It's It's a world like the book of Judges in the Old Testament. A world where everyone is just living and doing what is right in their eyes. Let me make it easy for you. Me first, God 
second. And maybe we could push that a little bit further, me first and God never. That's worldliness. Worldliness is saying I'm comfortable in a world like that. I think like that. I act like that. I desire the things that a world like that desires. That's what I want. That's how I'm living. That's how I'm thinking. Worldliness is so dangerous and it's so tricky because all of us, believers and unbelievers alike, are constantly in danger of being captivated by this world. And although it's tempting, friends, worldliness has no business in the life of a believer. It doesn't belong there shouldn't be welcomed in our life at all. It should feel alien to the Christian. It should be the opposite of comfortable. This is not a sermon attacking technology. It's not a sermon about how we use our time. It's Honestly, it's not a message about who we hang out with. Those are factors in worldliness, certainly. Absolutely, but it's not the main problem, and I, I want you to write this down. I'm going to say it a couple of times. Worldliness is dangerous because it leads my heart to try to find joy and happiness and satisfaction and lasting fulfillment. You can just write joy. In something that can never satisfy me. I'm going to say it again. Worldliness is dangerous because it leads my heart to try to find joy and happiness, and satisfaction, and lasting fulfillment. Try to find that stuff in something that can never, ever satisfy me. Robs us of the joy we're meant to find in Jesus. It robs us, it distracts us, it pulls us away from true and lasting joy. True and lasting happiness. Worldliness takes us away from the joy that is 100% available in a relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. Worldliness isn't ultimately about the wrong friends. It isn't ultimately about bad time management. It may be about having too many apps on your phone. But ultimately, it's about the heart. Worldliness is about the heart. It's, it's, it's a matter of what you love. It's a matter of whom you serve. It's, it always comes down to the heart. It's a matter of where you belong. It's ultimately about your mind and your heart and your will and your affections. Worldliness, it says, I want all of those. I want your mind and I want your affection. I want your will. I, I, I want to take those and, and hold you captive to a lesser joy. It, it wants to make you think that the only joy you'll ever find and have are the things that are here on earth. It's so deceptive. It makes you fall in love with that stuff. And I could give you the hugest list, but you already know it. It makes you fall in love with the, the world's image for you and the reputation and the friends and the look and the money and the status and the life. It, it, you just get focused on it. All the while you think you're chasing happiness and even maybe obtaining it from time to time for a short amount of time. You've almost got your hands on it. But the reality is it's only keeping you from the real and true source of joy, the real and true source of joy exclusively found in Christ. I believe a lot of people, maybe young, maybe old, are especially confused 
about Christianity. I believe that people think that this world is full of real, lasting joy. That there's joy here that's obtainable, and it's a joy that will satisfy them, and it's a, a joy that will last, and, and, and you buy into the temptation of worldliness. You believe so readily that you continue to chase it and chase after that lie that the world actually can offer happiness and fun and, and satisfaction. And then the confusion arises when you think that then becoming a Christian means you have to give all that up. The reality certainly is that the world is full of things that are fun and satisfying for a moment, and you can enjoy a sense of happiness and things for a while. But as all of you know, I don't have to convince you as those don't last. They don't last. We foolishly believe that it can give us a joy that's going to be permanent. And the reality is it lasts for seconds. Truth is that in the end, it leaves us empty and its worldliness is, is toxic that way. We continue to drink the same poison, thinking that it'll satisfy, thinking that it'll last. We repeatedly expose ourselves to the deadly counterfeits. Friends, worldliness is a slow kill. It's robbing you of everything, including any prospect for real joy. The world wants you to think and believe and act like it's the only place in this life where joy is available. It's a brief explanation of this chapter, <laughs> a long introduction to a short sermon. Uh, just for a few minutes, uh, just want to look at these last verses of chapter 3. How then should a Christian live in light of this problem, in light of this temptation that is constant for us to embrace worldliness? What are you and I supposed to do? And for that, we just zoom in on this last part of chapter 3. And I, I want to give you four responses to worldliness, four Principles from Paul for, for winning the war against worldliness. Okay, and I'm going to give them to you, and then we'll go through them one by one. Number one, copy the right people. Copy the right people. Number two, concede that worldliness wrecks. Concede that worldliness wrecks. Number three, consider your true home. And number four, commit to your convictions. Copy the right people, concede that worldliness wrecks, consider your true home, commit to your convictions. Look back at verse 17 with me. Brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. Paul boldly tells the Philippians to imitate him, to copy him. And he encourages them to keep their eyes on those who walk just like he does, who live just like he lives. Paul's saying, follow my example. Act like me. Imitate me. Learn from me what I do, what I say. Learn how I think. And then do that. And not only Paul, but he says in verse 17, those who are already imitating him. There's people already doing that. Find them and imitate them too. Those who walk according to the example, Paul says, he's already set. Verse 17, watch them. Do what they do. You may say, great, what's that, Paul? What are you doing that these believers should copy? What's the point for us? What is it exactly in your life that we're supposed to mirror? What should I be looking for? And this is why we went through chapter 3, but you could even just go back up to verses 12 through 16 and think about what he's already said there. He's admitting that he's not perfect. And he's helping us think right about a Christian who's still dealing with sin. 
What a great person to talk to. You mean you're not perfect? (laughs) I have so many questions for you. I'm not perfect either. And Paul goes on. He's thinking right about sin, and he's, he's, he's letting these believers know that he's been chasing after holiness and pursuing righteousness. I've got questions about that as well. How do you do that? What's that look like? And he's persevering in the whole thing because it, 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 it's a struggle. He's fighting the Christian fight. He's, he's living the Christian life. He's dealing with sin and he's, he's trying hard to do what's right and live in a way that honors Christ. And he's, he's, he's told these believers in these verses that he's staying motivated by his love for Jesus. Boy, I've got questions for you. I, I, I want to do the very same thing. Help me to do that. Help me to be like you, Paul, to be motivated by my Savior, on Monday morning, to, to live my life in a way that's pleasing to Christ, as him is my motivation. What a great example. Paul is, is saying that his life is a good example to follow. He, he's fighting against worldliness. He's not letting it get a grip on his life and And these believers would be wise to do what he is already doing. Friends, you you need to find examples of of people who are living the the way that you know you want to live as well. People who who, who are not comfortable with this world. Some example of, of people who are not acting like the world, who are not thinking like the world, who are not comfortable here. Find those people. Bring your life right up alongside of those people and don't let go ever. Just learn from them. Copy them. Be like them. Those who, 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 who hate the darkness of this world, they're not in love with this place. And you know who they are. Even now, some of you are thinking, yeah, it's just like so-and-so. That, that actually describes them pretty, pretty well. I, I need to copy them. Are they perfect? No. No, they're not. Do they struggle with sin? Yes. Of course they do. Do they have the Christian life perfectly nailed down? No. But I know they're not comfortable here. And I know they live their life motivated by Jesus, and I have a ton to learn from them. They're an example to follow. Some will be better than others. Some will be further along in their faith than others. But you and I desperately need to find someone to copy, someone to imitate, someone to be like. And this is the picture. Follow their good example. You, You may want something more specific than just chasing holiness. Great. Try Titus 2. Older men are to be temperate and dignified, and sensible, and sound in faith, and in love, and in perseverance. Older women, likewise, are to be reverent in their behavior, not malicious gossips, not enslaved to much wine, teaching what's good, that they may encourage the young women to love their husbands, to love their children. I know there's no wives in here who struggle with either one of those. Older women are to be sensible and pure, workers at home, kind, being subject to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be dishonored. Likewise, urge the young men to be sensible in all things. Show yourself to be an example of good deeds with purity and doctrine, dignified, sound in speech, which is beyond reproach. Find believers who resist the world like that. Those who desire to be more like Christ in their thoughts, in their words, and in their lives, and then do what they are doing. Find someone to copy. Number two, concede that worldliness wrecks. Verse 18, Paul is brokenhearted. Paul is is recounting this with tears. 
Why the tears, Paul? Because he's talking about people who claimed to be Christians, who professed Christ. They, they claimed that they loved Jesus more than this world, but the way they're living says otherwise. They are not friends, Paul says. They are not sons and daughters, but they are enemies of God. Enemies of the Christ of the cross. Um, you know that from just even looking at this, we don't even have to talk about Greek or, or any fancy words to just understand what, what Paul is saying. He's saying worldliness, it destroys. It absolutely destroys. It makes you an enemy with God, period. That word enemy is, is used in Romans 5. Verses 8 to 10, God demonstrates his own love towards us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. While we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son. Paul is reminding these believers with that word enemy that worldliness has a way of exposing where you're really at with God. You're in love with this world, friend. You're not who you think you are with Christ. You are an enemy with God in desperate need of salvation. You're an enemy of the cross of Christ. If, if you love this world, if you're comfortable here, you can't have both, Paul argues. You can't have the world and all that it's offering and God. That's the way it's, it's been since the foundation of the church. That's the tug. I want both. I want my cake and eat it too. I want both. Paul says this just doesn't work. Some of you may already be thinking of the verse where Jesus said you can't serve two masters. But it's really the verses that come right before it that you need to hear. Let me read it for you. Matthew 6, starting in verse 19. Listen to what, listen to what Jesus says. Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys, where thieves do not break in or steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The eye is the lamp of the body. So then if your eye is clear, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light that is in you is darkness, how great is the darkness. No one can serve two masters. For either he will hate the one and love the other, or he'll be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Worldliness makes you an enemy with God, and, and worldliness will only end in destruction. Look at verse 19. Their end is its destruction. Your God is your belly. Glory is your shame. Your mind is set on earthly things. All of those phrases, they, they just point to one truth. What people want most in life isn't in heaven. It's right here. That's what Paul's saying. There's no room for Christ. You want the praises of men. You're enamored with all that this life has to offer. This is where you belong. This is where you find reward. Everything that you want out of life is right here. No concern for the praise of Christ, only for the praise of men. No awe for the Savior. No desire for his presence or his embrace no thought of the reward that Christ offers, only what's here 
and now. If we had more time, I, I would have read this whole letter to you because you would have heard how different that thought is from the way Paul lives his life. That is so opposite for Paul. He, he wants to be like Jesus so badly, so much. He loves Christ and, and how different in that everything that he wants out of life is not here. To live as Christ, to die is gain. Rejoice in the Lord. Paul, it's just on his mind all the time. I, I can't wait to be with my Savior. I can't wait to, to have my praise from him and reward from him. I cannot wait. So different than that worldly mindset. You could ask yourself, what do I care about most in this life? What's the most that I, I care about in this life? What are, my, what are my habits? Maybe where do I spend time? Where do I spend my money? What do I aspire to? What do I desire? What, what do I want? Any of those questions would work. And then ask, to what degree would those answers be different than from someone who is completely worldly? who is unsaved, who has no desire for Christ, how would my answers be different from theirs? I hope to some degree that they would be different. If we're going to win the war against worldliness, we have to, to copy the right people. We have to, to concede the reality that worldliness wrecks and number three, we have to contemplate where our true home is. Contemplate your true home, verses 20 and 21. Let me just give you two words. Be homesick. We could almost move on. Just be homesick. Paul is, is, is tugging on our, our heartstrings a bit for our citizenship. Friends, if you're in Christ, you, you do not belong here. Your citizenship is in heaven. Crave it. Consider it. Think about it more then never. <laughs> when was the last time you thought about heaven? It's a hard question. But, but Paul is just putting it on a plate in front of us for us to see and, and to remember and to think about again that, that my citizenship is, it's with Christ. I belong where Christ is. That's my home. That's where my mind should be. It's like the 12th day of a 10-day vacation. It's over. I'm ready to go home. We've been out of money for four days. <laughs> he reminds the Philippians of this great promise, this great truth here. We're not waiting for anything else to happen in this life. There is nothing else to happen in order for Christ to return. We're simply waiting for the Savior. Verse 20, awaiting the Lord Christ to return. And when he does, he's going to do something amazing. Our bodies are going to be changed. We're going to get a body now fit for eternity. What will that be like? We shouldn't doubt that Christ is going to do this because Christ has the power and the authority and the ability to do exactly that, to give you a, a new body fit for eternity. 
going to get a body that's suitable for our eternal life with Christ. Chapter 15 of 1 Corinthians would be a good place to read if you have more questions about what that will be like. But, but I don't want us to be too distracted from what Paul is, is doing here. Do you see it? Paul is getting them amped up and excited about heaven. I get so excited when I think about a heavenly, eternal body. I still feel 25. I hope my body matches that thought. <laughs> Tried to lose five pounds. It's not working. I just, what will this body be like? I have so many questions, but who cares? I, I want to think about heaven. Paul is just ramping them up, drawing their minds away from this world back to heaven, to glory, to the place where Christ is. wants their minds engaged in thoughts of heaven. He wants them thinking about that place. He wants them longing for it. Great question of application. Do you think about heaven? Do I consider where my home is? Colossians 3 verses 1 to 4, if, this, if then you have been raised up with Christ... Keep seeking the things above where Christ is. That was a thought that was in your mind at the moment of salvation. Heaven, Christ, I can't wait. The worldliness comes in like a giant roadblock or, I don't know, a huge person in front of us at the movies. We can't see it anymore. We can't see heaven anymore. And Paul writes, no, no, keep seeking the things that are above Keep your mind fixed on this place where Christ is, Colossians 3, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on the things above, not on the things that are on earth. For You've died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is our life, is revealed, then you also will be revealed with him in glory. When is the last time you thought about heaven? tell you why you should, because it will help you win the war against worldliness. Keep your mind fixed on your Savior. The things of this world will lose their attractiveness. Last, number four, commit to your convictions. Commit to your convictions. Chapter four, verse one, therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. Stand firm. Be devoted, be dedicated, be committed to what you believe. You could also label this one as stand firm, because that's what Paul says. That's what we have to do. Stand firm in the Lord. Be firmly committed in conviction. That's what this is about. Be firmly committed to what you believe. Know what you believe and why. Let me make it real simple. Own it. Just own it. Your convictions about, about Christ and about your faith and about where your home is. Resisting worldliness won't just happen. It absolutely takes resolve. There's no drink. There's no pill. It takes an intentional refusal to just let go of who we are in Christ, it takes a dogged effort to stand firm in the Lord. We just don't get to sit on the couch and hope that it happens. We can't just do nothing and think that we're going to be immune to worldliness. Ephesians 6 verse 11 says, Put on the full armor of God that you may be able to stand firm 
against the schemes of the devil. Doing nothing isn't always a good thing. That's where we started, and that's where I think we should end. Doing nothing is the best way to ensure that you're worldly. I don't believe I have to convince you that worldliness is lurking for you. It's waiting for you all, all the time. This world is constantly holding out to you this joy substitute. It's constantly shoving it into your face, just inviting you to take. And what a counterfeit it is. It looks so close to the real thing. It looks so close to real joy. It looks like it, like it actually will give me joy. It feels real for a moment, but its, its purpose is to deceive and distract. It's the schemes of the devil. How we must stand firm against such a scheme. That fake joy, it won't last. It won't satisfy And it's pulling you away from the only one that can. Here's the point. You aren't going to have to give some great effort to be worldly. You just aren't. It's coming for you. Worldliness, friends, it knows where to find you. can find you through your TV. It knows what's on your Netflix account. It's on the other side of your computer monitor. It's right there. It's waiting. It it knows how to find you through your phone. It knows your Instagram account. It follows all your tweets. It knows right where you are. It knows where you work. It knows where you go to school. And if you do nothing, you'll find yourself walking right beside it, hand in hand. You have to do something to win the war against worldliness. You have to copy the right people. You must concede to the truth that worldliness wrecks. can't urge you enough to consider your true home way more often than you do. And more than anything, you must remain committed to your convictions. You not only believe the world isn't your home, but you live like it. I read this great quote about worldliness, and I'm going to end with this. I I just want to share it with you. Just listen. Listen. Resisting worldliness looks like this. You strap yourself to the grace of Jesus and you say, Lord, close my ears and shut my eyes and guard my heart to all the things that this world wants to tell me will give me satisfaction and will only make me want those things more than you. Doing nothing isn't a solution. Doing nothing is not a good thing. Father, thank you for your word. Help us to not forget it. May we delight in your testimonies. As the psalmist wrote and and sang and and worshiped you with, may we do the same. May we sing and, and pray and meditate on your word day and night that we may find what's truly valuable. We may see how rich your word is for us. Father, 
by your spirit, help us not to dismiss your word. When it comes to worldliness, write these truths, these principles on our heart. Father, help us to win the war against worldliness. Grateful for these people here today. Thank you, Father, for them. I pray for them. God, ask that you would go with them, encourage them. I beg you to write those truths on their heart as much as my own. We pray these in the name of Christ. Amen.